Well, man, it's so good to see you guys. Packed house on Super Bowl Sunday. Man, that's awesome. And it's raining. So you've got two reasons, like two legitimate reasons that church folks use to skip out on church. And yet here we are, full house. Give yourself a hand, MLC Dawson. Yes. Hey, well, today we're going to be wrapping up our series called Far More. My name's Nathan. If I've never met you, I'm one of the pastors here. I live in Forsyth County, but y'all are my favorite. You know, don't, don't tell Forsyth I said that. But a lot of exciting things are happening here. And uh, here's where we're going to wrap up this series. We're, we're going to talk about problems in our life. You know, a lot of us think, man, I'd, I'd like far more solutions for the problems that life has. And chances are in a room this big, there's something in your life right now that you would consider like an unanswered prayer. There's something in your life where like, I'm helping. I'm hoping that God shows me where to go. I'm hoping that God speaks to me. I'm opening up the word. I'm showing up at church. I've got wise counsel. Some of you are joining small groups. And so you're doing everything you can to hear from God and to get wise counsel. But how many of us have been through a moment where God gives us a solution to a problem or God gives us a next step to something and we don't really like what it is that we're hearing from him? Where he tells us what we need to hear, not necessarily what we want to hear. Ever been that way with your mom and dad where they kind of give you some chores and it's like, well, that's not what I wanted to hear. Like maybe you react kind of like this. Got some memes here for you today. You didn't see the dishes, did you? What? What dishes? You know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you're praying to God about your relationship status for all the single ladies out there. I need a godly man. Okay, here you go. No, 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 no. I got a little bit of a bad boy syndrome. Okay, one more, one more, one more. Lord, I really need you to show me my plan for my life. Okay, here it is. Like that's all, like I'm telling you, man, everything we need to know for all of life's problems can be found in a promise in God's word. Like, let me just tell you, there's like actually a verse in Romans 12 2 that tells you how to know God's will. Like it's a straight up formula. Romans 12 2, it says, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can discern what God's good, acceptable and perfect will is. And everybody's like, I just have a hard time figuring out God's plan for my life. Here it is. So if we want far more solutions, that means we've got to increase our faith and our trust in God this year because life is full of problems. Problems with our money, problems with our time, problems with our relationships, problem with our workplace, problem with friends, problem with our families. That's just the way life is. But let me tell you, without those problems, I don't know that we would fully know how to trust in God. Faith is easy when you're getting your prayers answered and you're getting what you want when you want it on your timeline. But how often does that happen? (laughs) Almost never. You know what I mean? So we've got to figure out how to respond to life's problems. Here's what I've learned. For people who know Jesus as their Lord, we've got promises of God to lean on. (laughs) God's promises are how we respond to life's problems. And the more promises that we acquaint ourselves with in God's word, the more firm of a foundation we'll have when life isn't going the way we think it should or the way we think it could. So today we're going to study about a, one of the kind of original heroes of the Old Testament. His name's Abraham. And he was recognized as a man of big faith. He trusted God so much that when God said, hey, I know you're kind of living in this agrarian culture and your family and your tribe is kind of nomadic, but I don't want you to just go from one valley to another. I want you to take everybody, hundreds if not thousands of people, and go to an entire new country because I'm going to bless every nation on earth and I'm going to turn your little nomadic tribe into a nation. And you got to think, Abraham at this point when he's receiving these promises from God, he's about 75 years old and he's not a father yet. And his wife is the same age as him. So he's having to calculate in his mind, you're going to bless every family through my family. You're going to establish my line forever. I don't have any offspring. 
So how does that work? And there's a moment where God sent like two messenger angels. Now, we, we got to kind of put ourselves in their shoes. So these angels took on human form. They showed up to Abraham and Sarah's house and said, y'all are going to be parents one day. And as a 75-year-old, you're probably like, one day? <laughs> I think that day is come and gone. And they actually laugh. Like they thought the angels were joking. Now, you've heard the verse, we live by faith, not by sight. The angels don't have to experience that. They see God do God things all the time. And so the angels were totally bewildered by the doubt <laughs> and the shock on Abraham and Sarah's face. And the angels said, why, why is she laughing? Is anything too hard for God? And I think that maybe marked Abraham because it's in that season of life where he decided to say yes to everything that God had for him. Now we're gonna, we're gonna look at the ups and downs. We're gonna see that Abraham, just like you and I, has a big trust. Yes, I trust you, I believe that I get to escape hell and spend eternity with you in heaven. But then there's these little problems along the way that I take into my own hands. It's really hard to apply the promises of God to the problems of life. We trust them with the afterlife and we trust them with the big things, but are we willing to apply the promises of God in the everyday minutia, details, and inconveniences that we face? So open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to pray, then we're going to dive in. God, I would ask today that you speak to us, that we would deepen our faith, that we would get to know your promises. We'd have a, a strong foundation for when the storms of life start crashing on us. We need you, Jesus, so speak to us. We'll be listening. Here we pray. Amen. So Romans is a really critical book in the New Testament. It was written by one of the early church founders, a guy named Paul, and there was a group of Jewish believers that were kind of displaced from Jerusalem in the city of Rome. They converted to Christianity, and Paul was basically trying to write them in 16 chapters everything they need to know about following Jesus, living like Jesus, and because they had their Hebrew lineage, he spoke to the Old Covenant and everything that was happening in the Old Testament, and how everything that we see, every story, every law, Every poem, every history book in the Old Testament was pointing toward Jesus and how Jesus would fulfill what the Old Testament law and the rituals and the sacrifices couldn't. And so they, at this point, may have still been practicing a lot of the Hebrew traditions and, and rituals of the temple. And so Paul's writing to them and trying to get them to focus more on the promises of God than what we have to offer. So check this out. In Romans chapter 4, verse 20. He's talking about Abraham and he's recapping the big faith that Abraham had. And he's recognizing it wasn't just Abraham's obedience to the law that made him be counted as righteous with God. Righteous just means existing in a right standing relationship with God. It was not his, it was not his legality. It wasn't his religiosity. It was his faith and his belief against all hope, against the odds that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he's going to do. So verse 20 says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. These four verses are chock full of just rich, rich theology that help us begin to build a framework of what it means to really believe in God's promises and apply God's promises against our problems. 
Some things have to happen in our life when we're not getting what we want when we want it. We've got to begin to compare our life against these principles and truths of God. I had a mentor tell me, you can break the rules of God. God gives us free will to rebel against the rules of God, but we will only break ourselves against the principles and the promises of God. And so when your prayers are going unanswered, when we're not getting what we want, we maybe have to not wonder if God is withholding things, but we've got to look at the posture of our heart and the life we're living and ask myself, am I living a life that God can bless? Am I living a life where the promises of God can become my reality? See, there's something that's supposed to happen when we trust in him that we begin to also live like him. See, God loves us freely and unconditionally. The one promise that God is obligated to deliver every time is the promise of forgiveness and salvation. All we have to do is receive that. But everything else hinges upon our positioning, our heart posture, our obedience. God doesn't have to heal us. God doesn't have to put money in the bank. A lot of times when we get into a relationship with somebody we shouldn't be with and it all of a sudden comes crashing down, God's like, I didn't force you to date that person. You have to understand free will plays a role in the promises of God manifesting in our lives. One of the promises of God is in Psalms 37. It says, you will get the desire of your heart when you delight in the will of God. Because something happens when we begin to delight in his will and spend time in his word. Hopefully our desires begin to match his and we want righteous things. We want good things. We want God things. And when that begins to happen, that's a life that God can't help but to bless. That's a life where promises abundantly guide us from point A to point B. And these are things that God desires for all of us. We just have to ask ourselves, are we willing for our beliefs about God to become our behaviors in this life? And when that happens, when our faith not as only something that we internally believe, but something that we externally live out. God can't help but to open up the heavens and pour out blessings on us. So I want to look at a few key words that I highlighted in my Bible that I think just kind of give us a little bit of insight as to what was happening in Abraham's heart and mind that would cause him to believe as a 75-year-old that we can still get pregnant. There are some amazing things that Abraham did because he believed in the promises of God. Like, so he not only got his whole family and livestock and riches and, and, and network and employees and moved all the way to the land of Canaan, which was not just like from Forsyth to Dawson. It was across the entire Middle East. There were moments where once they settled in there, as an 80-year-old guy, his nephew Lot had got caught up in a war. He wasn't even fighting in the war. The war just happened in his valley where he was farming. And so the 70-year-old dude basically gets 300 of his family together and goes up against an army of thousands. Like, how many 80-year-olds do you know were like, we can do this? Like, that's awesome. He had tremendous faith over and over again. Abraham believed in the promise of God. So that means he gauged in the, in the process of obedience. See, what I've learned is God's responsible for the promise, but we're responsible for the process. We're responsible for saying yes and trusting him and taking that step of obedience. And when the original Roman Jews there would hear that word promise, they would have heard it not just as hey, I promise I'm going to be there for you. Or of like, hey, buddy, I'm sorry I missed your game. I promise I won't miss it next time. It wasn't just this like guarantee. It was actually closely linked to their word for a summon, summoning somebody. 
So what they interpret God's promises as is, is a summons towards something that will benefit me in the future. That there is a divine appointment that God has got something in store for me. They, they, they coincided with God's plans, God's unique personal plan for me. Now I want you to think about the last time you got a jury summons. Okay? What do you do when that letter comes in the mail? You adjust accordingly. <laughs> you get a babysitter if you need to. You take off work if you need to because you don't want to face the consequences of missing out on that summons. Well, man, I want to tell you that, that, there are, that God is summoning things into your future. That God is summoning events. God has got divine appointments. And I want to ask us, are we willing to adjust our life accordingly? Are we willing to move when God says move? Are we willing to transition when God says transition? Are we willing to say no to things that are not adding value to our life so that our yes to the things of God really matters? If we really believe that God has summoned us toward a specific calling, a specific purpose, a specific destiny, and we know that all the things that he has in store for us, according to Jeremiah 29, are for our good, not to hurt us, but to prosper us, then we need to build our lives around those promises. And we need to look at the model of Abraham that he said yes immediately. Notice what it says here. A couple other words that I highlighted. No distrust made him waver. Now, this is the ESV, and it's kind of a word-for-word -word translation from the original language, and so sometimes you miss a little bit of, like, the localized version of it. So here's kind of the modern-day version of no distrust made him waver. He didn't overthink it. How many of you have been there before? I had this old pastor back in Pensacola. He's a country boy, and he would always say, man, you get paralysis from analysis. And I'm like, that's country, but that's good. Like, that'll preach. How many of you have been there before where you, you weigh out all the possible outcomes, you think of all the worst hypothetical scenarios, and, and you delay obedience? And you reluctantly, I don't know, God, I don't know. But no, with Abraham, no distrust, no doubt caused him to waver. I, I think there might be a correlation in my life between weighing out the options and calling it waiting on God and delayed obedience, which by the way, I've heard is still disobedience. See, it's not our good intentions of eventually saying yes to God that bring about his blessings on our life. It's our obedience. Yes is not a mentality. Yes is an action. No amount of distrust or doubt caused him to say no or to say maybe or even negotiate with God. It was immediate. Yes, I will trust you. Yes, I'll pick up and move. Yes, I will go rescue my nephew Lot, even though I'm outnumbered and outgunned. It's going to be a little bit bumpy when we begin to say yes, because what I've seen is faith is not really an instinct. It's not really something that comes natural. See, what comes natural to us is like path of least resistance, easy options, quick options. I want it when I want it, the way I want it. So there's going to be a part of your faith journey where it's almost like learning to drive. But I think it's like the perfect metaphor because I think back when I was learning to drive, I trusted my mom and my dad who were sitting in the seat beside me that if they said brake, I stepped on the brake. Now it was bumpy and it, didn't, it wasn't always a smooth ride and that's kind of the life of faith. But what if we brought that childlike trust and obedience that when God says stop, we stop. When God says go, we go. When God says turn right, we turn right. 
Now, here's, here's the good thing that God isn't, you know, married and, and, and there's, you know, God and then God's wife in the seat because you all know what it's like when you're learning to drive and mom and dad are giving you conflicting viewpoints, you know, like that's what you got to remember, like I'm your pastor, I'm not your Lord. So there's one time when I was driving and we had a big old Astro van and it was awesome. That's where I learned how to drive in and it was a 1987 Astro and like by the time that thing was done, it had 200,000 miles in the steering column, wasn't really holding, so it was more like a joystick. I'm in a steering wheel. And one time I was coming up and I saw the yellow light turn yellow and I wasn't sure, you know, proceed with caution or stop. And my mom is saying, stop, stop, stop in the back. And my dad is saying, punch it, punch it, punch it. <laughs> and I'm like, brake, gas, brake. What, what is, what do you mean? And, and then I finally just like slammed on the brakes and we skid up right to that. And my dad's like, do you, I need to take over and drive? I said, punch it. I'm like, I thought you meant punch the gas. He goes, I meant punch the brake. I'm like, nobody says that dad. <laughs> there's going to be a little bit of, there's going to be a little bit of a learning curve when it comes to like activating our faith and trusting in God. There's going to be a part of it. We have to release control of knowing the outcome of letting go of the way we think things should or shouldn't be. There's got to be some Bible study involved because if you don't know the promises of God, what do you have to throw against the problems of life? One of my favorite verses, Isaiah 55, it says, just like the rain pours down from the sky and, and provides nutrients to the soil, which provides food for the eater. That's the same thing that happens with the word of God. It never returns void. It always accomplishes something. Like we have got a surefire solution to all of life's problems. And if we're not digging in and opening it up and studying it for ourselves, then we're missing out. If all we do with Bible study is what Brian leads us in on Sundays, then we've got Brian's faith, not our own. We've got to dig in and know God's promises so that we can be like Abraham and not waver and not be indecisive and not be confused. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that God is not the author of confusion. He doesn't want you to exist in a state of chaos, wondering what his will is. He wants to guide us like a good father. He wants to reveal things to us. And he has spoken. And we've got in our heritage of faith, thousands of years of faithful people writing it down. Matter of fact, that last verse says it was, uh, but the words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. See, these aren't just history lessons. And if we read these Old Testament stories, like it's just kind of the old constitution of the Hebrew nation, we're missing out on the humanity. You got to put yourself in those stories and be inspired, be inspired by their faith and their obedience. Man, Hebrews 11 is kind of like the hall of fame of our faith. It's an entire chapter of people that were underdogs, that weren't counted as like the winners, weren't the obvious choice, but were used by God anyways to do significant things. And it is all because of their faith. You got to spend some time in there and almost treat those stories of faith like when you were a kid and maybe you're 
an NBA fan and you put like this poster Michael Jordan up in your room and maybe you thought I could do that one day too. Like his excellence, his accomplishments inspired you to get out there and dribble harder and practice. For me, I, I was a musician so there were certain guitar players that when I heard the way they play, it just made me want to get in my room and play and practice and try to play faster and with more accuracy and learn different riffs and learn music theory. You see, these stories that have been recorded are not just to make a big deal of them, but they're meant to point us in the right direction. So when we study God's word, when we see the successes and failures of people, men and women called by God, we've got to put ourselves in that situation and say, man, how does this apply to my problem? What am I supposed to take away from the success and the failures of someone like Abraham? I want to read you the verse, first verse of Hebrews 11, and it just kind of sets the tone for that hall of faith, that hall of fame. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. That's what it means to apply the promises of God. Where we may have an idea of the direction we're supposed to go, but we don't know the destination. I heard somebody say that faith is kind of like being in a dark hallway. And instead of turning the lights on the whole hallway, God just gives you a match to take one step forward at a time. So where does this faith, where does this life in the promise intersect our daily lives? Where does this intersect our situations that aren't going the way we want and our unanswered prayers? I, I read over those prayer requests every week and I even, one of my Sunday morning routines when I'm preaching is to just refresh myself and look at the prayer requests that I've written from the week before just to remind myself of what's going on in the life of our church and, and I see weekly prayer requests for our relationships, prayer requests for our finances, prayer requests for our time management, our job and so what I want to do today is just look at some of those categories and look at some of those problems and see what it would take for us to apply the promises of God and really activate our faith and saturate our problems with God's promises. I want to first look at the way we spend our time. This is a huge thing, even though we've all got the same 24 hours in a day. If you're like me and you love your job, workaholism might be something that you struggle with. Like, hi, I'm Nathan and I'm a workaholic. Just come and clean. Like, I love what I do. And guess what? My wife works for the church too. And she loves what she does. So it's really easy to just stay in work mode all the time. You, like, you may know you have a problem if everything is always urgent. What I've learned is if you suffer from urgencyism, the things that are important always aren't gonna fit in that category of what's urgent. Sometimes the tyranny of the urgent conducts us to steward our time in a way that shows that our belief is it's up to me, not up to God. That it's all dependent on what I bring to the table, my leadership, my connections, my expertise, my effort. When God himself, who's all powerful, who's all knowing everywhere at one time, took a break. <laughs> Now, I know he had a big job of creating the heavens and the earth and the universe and all the animals and all that. But even Jesus kind of did a throwback to that when he was talking to some priests about the purpose of a Sabbath, the purpose of a seventh day of rest. And he said, you know, the Sabbath wasn't created for God's benefit. It's for you to refresh and recalibrate. And if we don't have some moments in our life, not just vacation, which honestly, the way we vacation nowadays is not really about rest for us, especially if you have kids, it's not for you. So that doesn't count. 
I'm talking about moments in every day and moments in your week where you don't answer emails, where you don't respond to text, where you turn down the volume of everything that is urgent and an emergency and you steward your time in a way where it says my relationship with God first, my relationship with my family next, and then out of that health, everything else will find its proper place. And that's really scary if you suffer from urgencyism or workaholism because you start thinking, how is it all going to make sense? Well, I'm just telling you, what I've seen in my life is my efficiency, my productivity goes up even when I create less time for work. But when I'm stewarding my time in a way where my relationship as a son of God gets first priority, then my relationship as a husband to Erica gets second priority, then my relationship with my son, Declan, and my daughter, Adelaide, comes third, then everything else just has a funny way of falling into place. That's why I think Jesus said in Matthew 6 that when we seek first his kingdom, everything we're worried about will be added unto you. God wants to show off in our life, but if we are handling it all ourselves, then there's no room for him to get any credit, for him to get any glory. How we spend our time is a reflection of our belief about what God is capable of doing if we'll just give him some time back if we'll just create some margin for him to do what only he can do. I think a lot of us are missing out on some miraculous things happening because we are in control of the calendar. So let's give some time back to God. Let's give God more than an hour on Sunday. Let's give God some time throughout the week. I think it was Martin Luther who was responsible for the Protestant Reformation. He was quoted for saying, I've got so much to do today, there's no way I can do it without three hours of prayer. Now, I know that, you know, for like, I'm, I'll just be honest, I've got a really short attention span, so three hours of prayer sounds about as possible as me running a full marathon right now. <laughs> but I think that's kind of that heart posture that we need to take when it comes to handling the burdens of our time and the problems of time management. And finance is another thing that just rips at our hearts. I think our finances are our greatest competitor for our faith in the Lord, for giving us a sense of security that everything's going to be okay. And, you know, let's just be honest, consumerism runs pretty deep in this part of Georgia. Keeping up with the Joneses-ism is another thing that, that, that our money kind of dictates our amenities, our priorities, and our preferences. And a lot of times we maybe feel like, okay, well, there's a bunch of months and there's only this much money. <laughs> there's these expenses inside of the month, but there's only this much money. And I hear what the pastor says when he talks about, you know, we're going to pass the offering buckets and I want to put some money in there or I want to put some money in the drop box. I want to fund the ministry. I want to send some of these students on a mission trip. I want to help out with the tuition for a kid's camp because I know the life change that will take place. But look, the math just doesn't add up. There's no way I can sacrifice all this and still be able to meet all my obligations. And I just want to tell you, you're, you're probably right. But we live by faith, not, not by sight. The, the math in the kingdom of the world doesn't add up when you, we handle math the way God wants us to. But math in the kingdom of God, there's something supernatural, miraculous that happens when we look at our finances and say, you know what, the, the first 10%, the tithe, I'm going to give back to God. That's just, just a discipline that my wife and I have just never even decided to not do. We've never looked at our bills and thought, well, maybe we just kind of not tithe this month. I've just seen God show up too many ways and do more with 90% of my income than what I could have accomplished 100% on my own. That math does not add up. But this is the only place in scripture where God says to test him. 
Like the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, one-time God that spoke everything into existence, that rose people from the grave, that rose himself from the grave, says, you can test me on this one. Give me your best shot. I'm, I'm telling you, I've had weird, weird things happen. I remember we got married my wife's senior year, November 2010. She was senior year in college, not high school. <laughs> I saw some looks. Some people were like, oh my, that is too young. Come on. We got married in November of her senior year of college, and so that meant in January she was going to have to quit her part-time job and uh, do a full-time internship. And so we were going to go from a, a, a two-income, you know, one of those was a pastor income, and hers was a, her part-time income was she was working at a clothing store, to one income. But I felt like God was telling us that we need to continue giving to the church as if we still had her income. And she's like, yeah, I was kind of feeling the same way. It was really weird. Didn't add up. And the very first time that we would have, that, that we were going into like a single paycheck in January of 2011, an insurance check where we overpaid for medical procedure like six months before came and it was the same exact amount that her paycheck would have been. Like, I've just seen God do wacky, wacky things whenever I apply his promises to my problems. I think a lot of us want to be generous. We've got the good intentions, but we haven't positioned our life in a way where we can. And, and that's why, that's, that right there is the sole reason that we're doing FPU. We see your prayer request. We know the chains that money has in our life. And I just believe that money is supposed to be a tool. It's not supposed to have the power to make or break our lives. And if we would just handle our finances in a way that shows that God's got it, that he's the provider, that he's the one that meets my needs, not the person signing my paycheck, not the amount of money that's in my retirement, that God is in control. <laughs> Until we can get there, we're missing out on some supernatural things happening in the bank account. God will not let you down. And if you feel like you don't know how to even arrange your life in a way to get there, that's what FPU is all for. And that's why we're offering this class. It helps us position our lives financially to match our intentions to live generously. Because I think everybody in this room would love to do something would love to sponsor kids. Would love to pay it forward and be at Starbucks and, pay and bless somebody behind us anonymously. It feels amazing to do these things. But it's difficult. It's so difficult when our position doesn't match our intention. And those are the moments where it really matters. That's the moment where we're going to get far more out of our life when we start applying God's promises to our problems. In these final moments as we begin to you know, wrap up and we're going to have a time of worship, Man, I just wanted to share with you a few promises that, that God helped me stumble across this week. And I would just love to just speak a few things over you today in God's word and just be reminded of, that for every inconvenience you face, for every unanswered prayer, for every frustration that's going on in your life, there is a promise from God to see you through to something brighter and something better. And the Bible tells us that those who wait on the Lord, they find renewed strength. I already share with you in Psalm that when we choose to delight in His will, all of a sudden our prayers start finding the answer yes a lot more often. You know, in the book of James chapter 1, it's the only place in the Bible that says you get it every time you ask for it, and it's wisdom. God wants us to be wise. If we ask for it, God will share wisdom with us and give us the clarity we need to make the right decisions. In Philippians 4, it talks about a peace that passes understanding. 
but the part that we play in receiving that peace is presenting our quest with thanksgiving. So I chose one day a long time ago, I'm never gonna ask God for something without thanking him for it first. And then a friend of mine just yesterday said, well, what if you did that with the people you're in a relationship with as well? Never asked my son to clean something up without thanking him for something. It's weird, right? It's not instinctual, but that is our faith. We live by faith, not by sight. John 10.10 10 says he came to give us life and give it to us abundantly. And I think a lot of us in the room, if we were to describe our life right now, it's not necessarily abundant. That wouldn't be the first word that we would choose, but that's God's desire for us. So what do we have to do to experience abundance? God promises us that we'll never be alone, that his Holy Spirit is with us. His Holy Spirit's job is to help us remember the promises. I don't know what it is that you're facing today what weakness that you're walking through, but it's in those moments of weakness where we get to experience his grace and its true strength. So my prayer for us today, as we examine our lives, as we sing these songs, that we would ask God to show us where our faith is lacking, that he would remind us of some promises and we would put that to work against life's problems. Let me pray for you. And then we're gonna sing. God, help us to be obedient. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be faithful. But Lord, I think before we can get to all those things, we've got to be honest. And I pray that we use these last few minutes in a time of song. Just look in the mirror and see the areas of our lives where we are allowing our problems to carry more weight than your promises. Lord, help us to dig into your word and discover these promises. Send us little reminders, even if it's just like the right song on the radio at the right moment, or help us to download the Bible app and turn on notifications and give verses of the day. Lord, help us just to position ourselves where we're hearing from you more often so that we've got the tools and the ammo we need to fight the fight when life gives us problems. Let us respond with your promises. In your name we pray, amen.